Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewelry that makes you look like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly ebay gets it so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch stitch sole and logo is checked by experts with ebay authenticity guarantee you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach ensure your next purchase is the real deal visit ebay.com for terms This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde asks, at what point are the world's most powerful men past their sell-by date? Rachel Healy explores the ugly new side of theatre audiences. And Canadian musician Feist reflects on what impact adopting her daughter and then losing her father had on her songwriting. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, in the wake of the recent apology issued on behalf of the Dalai Lama, Marina Hyde asks why so many of the world's most powerful men are yet to be put out to pasture. Read by Evelyn Miller. His holiness often teases people he meets in an innocent and playful way announces an apology from the office of the Dalai Lama, sounding for all the world like one of those statements issued in the first wave of hashtag MeToo, as various older men made pained and absurd reference to unwanted hugs, Pixar's John Lasseter, or a belief that they had been pursuing shared feelings, talk show host Charlie Rose. Students of these mayor not really culpers were left with the impression that the victim's misunderstanding was the real tragedy here, unless you counted the very belated losses of various glittering careers, which were obviously also desperately sad. The specific people to which this current Dalai Lama apology refers are, in fact, one person, more accurately, one young boy, who was invited to suck my tongue by the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism on stage at a temple in India. The event took place in February, but has only just gone viral, meaning an apology has only now been deemed necessary by His Holiness, or rather, by His Holiness's office. 
It is fair to say that the interaction with this distinctly unsettled child has not been taken by many people in the spirit in which the Dalai Lama's office retrospectively insists it was meant, despite that insistence being accompanied by the classic non-apology-apology gesture towards any hurt his words may have caused. In the interests of clarifying things for those pen-pushers slash chime-tinglers in His Holiness's office, it's not the words quite so much as the spectacle of an 87-year-old man sitting expectantly with his tongue out as a child squirms in front of him. When is a seemly retirement age for a Dalai Lama, other than what we might broadly categorise as before this sort of thing starts happening in public? The Dalai Lama retired as leader of Tibet's government in exile in 2011, one year after he did the iPhone advert, which promised that Apple's latest model was the most trusted phone ever. But he retains his position as the foremost spiritual leader of the Gelug school of Tibetan Buddhism. The process of identifying his successor has been inching forward for some time, though the Dalai Lama has mentioned dreams in which he sees himself living to 113. A few years ago, he twice stated that any female successor of his would have to be attractive, or she would be not much use. You don't see that particular quote of his bandied around as Instagram hashtag inspo, though it did at least provide another occasion for his office to issue an apology. The search for a successor continues, though an alternative Dalai Lama may also be chosen by the Chinese government. Speaking of whom, the Dalai Lama's most committed foe, 69-year-old Chinese leader Xi Jinping, has rewritten the state rulebook to allow his own premiership to go on and on. It seems to be the fashion these days. Even Leonid Brezhnev was public-spirited enough to die at 76, Vladimir Putin is 70, but regards visibly dreadful health as absolutely no bar to office. Over in that other superpower, the United States now appears fully committed to late-stage gerontocracy on both sides of the political divide. The next US presidential election may well be fought by a 76-year-old currently up on criminal charges and an 80-year-old president whose occasionally rambling public utterances have the effect of making one imagine his aides with their hearts in their mouths somewhere just off stage, willing him to get to the end of them without further incident. Perhaps a lengthy and gruelling election campaign will flatter this quality. More likely not. Meanwhile, some of the most powerful companies in the world are run by men who in lesser occupations such as mine and yours, may have been put out to pasture some time ago. It was Rupert Murdoch who once described the Dalai Lama as a very political old monk shuffling around in Gucci shoes. Quite rude. The Dalai Lama is actually five years younger than the News Corp chairman, who was gearing up for a landmark lawsuit later this month over 2020 election fraud, a lie knowingly pushed by his outlets in a scandal in which he somehow felt powerless to intervene. 
Murdoch's most recent engagement was celebrated in this column mere weeks ago. The distressing subsequent news that said engagement had been called off was buried on the day of the arraignment of Donald Trump, the aforementioned 76-year-old, a blockbuster event that also nudged headlines about the 74-year-old Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas down the pecking order. Mr Thomas has accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of luxury hospitality from a major Republican donor, the 74-year-old Harlan Crow, whose hobbies reportedly include collecting communist dictator statuary and Nazi memorabilia. A thunderous leader column in Murdoch's Wall Street Journal obligingly referred to this as the smearing of Clarence Thomas. Mandatory retirement might be a thing at some places of work in the US and beyond, but for a certain stature of man, it is evidently not something that needs to be worried about. The idea of giving way to someone a few years younger, to say nothing of a few decades, does not appear to loom large in their minds, degenerated or otherwise. On they all go, really putting the ancient into ancient wisdom. We can all celebrate a good innings, of course, but a remarkable amount of today's biggest hitters do seem to have long passed the point at which a dignified walk back to the pavilion is in order. That was Donald Trump, Rupert Murdoch, the Dalai Lama. Living proof that no one is too big for retirement by Marina Hyde. Read by Evelyn Miller. Next, with numerous recent examples of audiences behaving badly at the theatre, including screaming, live streaming and even copulating during shows, Rachel Healy asks what exactly can be done. Read by Joplin Sibtain. On Good Friday police were called to a Manchester performance of the Bodyguard musical after staff at the Palace Theatre, who were attempting to quieten an audience member singing loudly, were greeted with unprecedented levels of violence, according to the venue's front-of-house supervisor. Other incidents of disruptive behaviour occurred recently during performances of Bat Out of Hell and The Drifter's Girl in London, as well as Jersey Boys in Edinburgh. Meanwhile, the Royal Opera House handed a lifetime ban to someone who heckled a child singer. The newsletter Popbitch and the comedian Tom Horton have each reported couples having sex during performances, and an audience member at the Harold Pinter Theatre took photos of James Norton naked in a little life. This turned out to be a pap who then sold them. Such stories of audience bad behaviour have focused on two issues – what counts as proper etiquette at live shows, and the way audiences treat venue staff. For some people, audience members who eat, tap their feet, or merely get up to use the toilet, or laugh too loudly, are deplorable. But that isn't what's derailing performances, and suggesting that it is not only deters some people from attending shows, but also detracts from the problem of truly unacceptable behaviour. A recent survey by the Broadcasting, Entertainment, Communications and Theatre Union, BECTU, found that 90% of theatre venue employees had experienced or witnessed unacceptable behaviour from audiences, 
including assaults, vandalism and racist language. And 70% said things were worse than pre-pandemic. Stand-up and jukebox musicals, which feature the hits of famous acts, were the worst for bad behaviour. Maddie, not her real name, has been a front-of-house assistant since 2019 at a theatre in the North, staging plays, musicals and comedy. She says disruptive incidents now occur weekly and are increasingly serious. Myself and my colleagues have been physically assaulted. We've broken up fights, stopped people urinating in their seats, been screamed at. In her experience, large touring musicals are particularly disruptive. People tend to be very intoxicated before they arrive and treat the show like a gig. This causes clashes with other audience members. With large amounts of alcohol, things can escalate quickly. In the Beck 2 survey, more than half of respondents felt their employers needed better drink policies. Alcohol does play a part, says Philippa Childs, head of Beck 2. We think there should be limits. Respondents also highlighted audiences' sense of entitlement, perhaps linked to the cost of living. Lots of these shows are expensive, says Maddie, meaning people feel like they're entitled to behave as they please. The Stand is a group of comedy clubs in Edinburgh, Glasgow and Newcastle. It's difficult to say whether it's worse post-pandemic, says the Edinburgh deputy manager, Cat McGregor. There was a honeymoon period where people were really appreciating being out. Then it went back to how it was. Disruption is almost always linked to alcohol, McGregor says. In comedy clubs, the performers often take on crowd management duties themselves, and many have noticed an increase in poor behaviour, chatting throughout shows, shouting out, and extreme inebriation. Alexander Bennett has been a stand-up for 14 years and mostly performs in London. Heckling has increased a bit, but sadly not improved, he says. But chatter is far more disruptive and difficult to deal with. We spent two years looking at each other through screens. Some people's brains still think they're behind that glass, but we can all see and hear them now and we'd like them to shut up. In a perhaps related phenomenon, more people are using phones during shows sometimes even filming comedians. Bennett recently kicked out a group for live-streaming a show. I feel basic politeness and the social contract of watching a performance is not exclusionary, he says. Part of the issue could be a mismatch in expectations. Some people arrive at musicals expecting to sing and dance, while other customers would really rather they didn't. Musicals such as Six and Anne Juliet have organised specific sing-along shows to ring-fence performances where such audience participation is appropriate. Meanwhile, the Ambassador Theatre Group has said it will now avoid phrases such as the best party in town in marketing materials. Many comedians say a rise in viral clips or performers interacting with hecklers has led to skewed views of what a comedy night involves. We get a couple of customers most nights who have this misconception that a comedy show is about heckling the act, says McGregor. We explain, you're disrupting the show for everybody else. It ruins the act's flow. We try to stamp it out, but in a way that allows people to understand why. There are some punters who want to get roasted by comics, though. There's no accounting for them.
Most venues already have rules to govern audience behavior. Just as cinemas tell you to switch off your phone, theaters communicate messages via ushers or pre-show announcements. At Maddie's Theater, there are clear rules about singing, filming, and alcohol consumption. The challenge, she says, is enforcing them. Some shows have introduced light-hearted approaches, such as a character asking the audience to follow certain rules, says Maddie. If you can get an audience on side early, it reduces conflict. Bennett agrees. Uniting the crowd is crucial. I've seen gigs drastically improve after a disruptive person leaves, as the remaining audience are united in their rejection of that behavior. The stand believes it has fewer incidents than other comedy clubs, possibly thanks to its personal approach, which includes staff greeting customers at the door. That sets the tone of the night, says McGregor, who tries to impart rules with a humorous twist. I always say, we strongly recommend you put your phones on silent unless you enjoy being publicly shamed. That gets them smiling, but makes them think. In a move away from strict audience etiquette, many venues now offer relaxed performances. In London in 2020, Battersea Arts Centre, or BAC, became the world's first relaxed venue, creating a tolerant environment, says artistic director Tarek Iskander, and foregrounding access needs. A person with Tourette's can freely tick. Someone with sensory issues can leave to decompress while ear defenders and chill-out spaces are available. You won't find rigid rules about dress code, silence or readmission to the auditorium, and Iskander is especially keen that audiences don't police each other through shushing or angry retorts. The relaxed venue model, he says, discourages that behaviour and says that we are a collective, but we all experience this in different ways and part of the joy of a live performance is that the audience are part of it. We aspire to be as welcoming as possible to a broad range of people. It is not anything goes, though. We don't tolerate behavior that is cruel or harmful to others, says Iskander. A lot of these are gray areas. You have to trust your staff to make tough calls. Feedback has been positive, Iskander says. People with access needs feel welcome. Older people enjoy the freedom, while parents have fewer anxieties about bringing children. People always assume that it creates some sort of anarchy, but that's not the case, Iskander says. The experience may be alien for old-school theatre-goers, so BAC alerts audiences about what to expect, encouraging an environment of mutual respect. It is proven so successful that while many venues report increased antisocial behaviour, Iskander says we've not experienced any bad behaviour from our audiences. The key at comedy clubs is to have everyone laughing together. It's a lovely thing to witness, says McGregor, who has noticed some people enjoying shows so much they unconsciously repeat lines. That's totally different from non-stop heckling or conversation which can actually be dealt with gently, offering drunk hecklers water, reiterating why chiming in derails the show, or a pacifying refund if someone is finally evicted. This month, Bechtu launched Anything Doesn't Go, a campaign to tackle antisocial behaviour. Its Safer Theatres charter outlines standards it wants UK venues to agree to, including publishing behavioural rules, tackling the impact of alcohol and zero-tolerance policies for violent, abusive or discriminatory behaviour. 
Staff want employers to be more supportive, Childs says. The time for action is now. Venues need to talk to their workforce to find out what needs to be put in place. Behaviours have deteriorated and it's time for a reset. Iskander says, we have a motto at BAC. Not for you, not for me, but for us. That seems to me something that supports both wild creativity but also cares for others. That's always the combination we're trying to achieve. That was... We've had to stop people fighting and urinating in their seats. The Ugly New Side of Theatre Audiences by Rachel Healy. Read by Joplin Sibtain. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, the singer Feist helped to find mid noughties indie with her song 1, 2, 3, 4. She discusses why she's no longer willing to pull her punches and explains her decision to pull out of a tour with Arcade Fire. Read by Colleen Prendergast. A few years ago, the Canadian singer Leslie Feist bought a home in Los Angeles, a house with a small plot of land where she could plant tomatoes in February and find a kind of warmth and ease far from the fierce Ontario winter. Today she sits bare-armed in the sunshine of a California morning, the sound of birdsong catching on our video call. Above her, two gleefully coloured pictures have been thumbtacked to the white kitchen wall, one by her father, Harold, an abstract expressionist painter, the other by her young daughter. Feist adopted her daughter in 2019, and her arrival proved a weltering force in the life of the songwriter. She tries to describe the experience, the vulnerability, the sleeplessness, the love, and tells how, in the time before her daughter arrived, a photographer friend gave some advice. Being a parent will incinerate you. Feist balked, but the friend continued, the person who rises from the ashes is someone who you'll be really glad to be for the rest of your life. At that point in her life, Feist was five albums deep and one of the most acclaimed artists of her generation. Over the course of three decades, she had risen up through Calgary punk bands, electro-pop collaborations and a stretch with the sprawling Toronto outfit Broken Social Scene to a solo career that garnered Grammy nominations, Juno Awards, soundtracked arguably the most famous iPod commercial and, most importantly, scored a much-fated appearance on Sesame Street. Her music had been celebrated for its intimacy, intellect and experimentation, for the extraordinary contours of her voice. It was a lot to incinerate. To a certain extent, the confines of the pandemic eased the process, enabling her to focus on her daughter and give little thought to touring or songwriting or album-making. I wasn't diffusing my energy by trying to maintain a former sense of how life is meant to be. She says, I was forced to double down into home life. Feist quarantined with her father and her daughter in the countryside just outside Toronto. 
It gave me this beautiful advantage, she says, of staying still with two people I love. She describes her father as a thriving introvert, his mind busy with art and inventions, with history and science and quantum theory. Then, in his late 70s, the time he spent with his new granddaughter seemed to rejuvenate him. He was older and dealing with his own litany of difficulties, and somehow, to put this little cherub in his arms, I could see it actually shift him. In the spring of 2021, when her daughter was one and a half, Feist's father died. It was a levelling moment for the singer, who saw herself suddenly on what she describes as the conveyor belt of time, caught somewhere between the loss of a parent and the helplessness of her young child. It's a necessary cycle, she says. I think until you either meet birth or death, you don't really know where you are on that assembly line. That spring, she was preparing for a series of work-in-progress residency shows, a new way for her to shape the songs she had half begun over the previous 18 months, and that would eventually lead to her new album, Multitudes. It was strange, she realised, not to have the steer of her father, with whom she had held a lifelong creative conversation. The bummer is he didn't hear any of these songs, because they were all sketches, she says, but his work was to face a blank canvas and to balance light and colour and absence and presence, and his absence was so with me then that it was like a presence. In a way, my conversation with him could continue through my work. The residency shows began in Hamburg and ran to Toronto and on to Denver, LA and Seattle – They were originally conceived as a way to bring people together after the pandemic, taking place in the round in a way that felt simple and intimate. What Feist hadn't expected was how much their closeness would hold her through her more personal loss. I hadn't known, she says, that I was singing myself through my grief. She titled the residencies Multitudes, a way to describe all of the different new selves she was inhabiting. The songs were new, the loss of him was new, the role of being a mother was still new, she remembers. I had to figure out how to show up for all these different faces I needed to wear. Songwriting had changed since she became a mother. She speaks of the need to write in the slivers of time available to her, of using her hours better than before. I've never really been prolific when it comes to writing, she says, There are periods of time where I decide to open up the solar panels and find that generative feeling that I can engage in a longer form of conversation with myself, maybe dig a little deeper than what my normal day would require. Now, finding the moments to write and distill her thoughts came to feel almost like I was grasping at the last tendrils of who I am. She found her relationship with melody and harmony became more complex. She became interested in lullaby and the soothing mechanism of repetition. She listened to classical Argentinian and Haitian guitar music and to the songs and poetry of Molly Drake, things that sounded soft yet complicated. I found more detail comforting in that way people enjoy maybe doing a crossword, she says, the feeling of having to work on something. She worked with minimal equipment, 
a digital eight-track recorder about the size of a coffee mug and a nylon string guitar. I was gravitating towards that rather than a steel string because I was just looking for anything soft that would ease the rigour that parenting an infant took. She says, everything was a bit hard-edged, you know? She also began to think about how she had written songs in the past, how deliberately opaque she had made them. I'd written songs in which I'm the only one who knows what I'm trying to hide and what I've tried to show and what I've put behind the soft lens, she says. There are songs where I felt that I've pulled punches. But if I'm going to be doing this, as I have been for another 20 years, wouldn't it be more interesting to actually not hide? A lot of the tracks on the new album explore a similar theme, particularly the way the pandemic caused a re-examination of our home lives and our closest relationships. It's the tendency to hide from the person that you're meant to be most visible to, she says. But if you don't allow yourself to be seen, you're not bringing yourself to the table to grow. All of these experiences, lockdowns, motherhood, grief, the residencies, brought a new kind of intimacy to the material, a sense that Feist was leaning in more than ever before. Leaning in brings you closer, and when you get closer, there's more clarity, she says, and actually there's the opportunity to be quieter and to be more direct. When she came to record the album in the quiet of Northern California, she told her producer she wanted almost that ASMR amount of proximity to the sound, almost like the binaural headphone thing where there's a voice right here and it's almost making the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Her producer obligingly built a kind of half-shell out of foam for Feist's face to sit inside and another that arced over her guitar. It was a canny way, she explains, for the sounds of her voice and her guitar to stand quite separate from each other, to make them sound ever closer. Last September, Feist took her back catalogue and her fledgling songs out on tour, supporting her fellow countrymen, Arcade Fire. But, just as the show was kicked off in Dublin, allegations of sexual misconduct against the band's frontman, Wynne Butler, surfaced online. He denied the accusations, but two days later, Feist pulled out of the rest of the tour, explaining her decision in a lengthy statement online. Today she is open about the difficulty of that day, recalling sitting in a Dublin pub, reading the headlines, along with the rest of the world, and knowing that she needed to act. There was more weight on a single moment than I'd ever felt in my life, in the sense that a decision needed to be made, she says. An impossible philosophical tangle needed to be untangled under this scrutiny and under this pressure. She felt a responsibility, she says, to her band and her touring team who would all feel the impact of cancelling shows. She worried, too, that she did not want to cast herself as judge or jury. But there was another responsibility, she felt, to people she did not know who would come forward with their stories. She likens the sensation to trying to thread a needle. I was not comfortable with the thoughts going through my head, with the sense that this was on my shoulders. She says, any attempt to try to move forward as if I didn't need to respond was just impossible. The moment she decided to leave came to her on stage during the second show of the tour. 
she drafted a statement and shared it with a handful of people she trusted, with Chili Gonzalez and Peaches and Andrew Whiteman of Broken Social Scene, as well as a friend who works in crisis management. She showed it to her tour photographer, Sarah Melvin, who was there beside her in Dublin. And she sat next to me and let me read it to her over and over and over, over the course of many, many hours of twilight, through the night, into the dawn, Feist recalls, knowing that I had decided I wasn't going on and I needed to figure out how to tell people why. When it was written, she turned to her team and told them they were leaving. Tears broke out all around me, she remembers. They were relieved not to have to function in our healthy culture inside what felt like an unhealthy culture of Arcade Fire's band and crew. She has not spoken to any of Arcade Fire since. We weren't friends, she says. Everyone believes that we were tight because we were all Canadians, but we almost never crossed paths. There was no relationship to tend to because we didn't have one to begin with. She rarely thinks of that episode now. Somehow I think that means it didn't follow me home, she says. But when she looks back, it is with the sense that she was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Or at the exact right place at the exact right time, she suggests. What needed to happen inside of me in that moment will serve me and my daughter well. Across our conversations, Feist often talks this way, as if, after the incineration of parenthood and loss, she is finding a way to rebuild herself as the person she would like to be. Over the years, I've found I'm increasingly writing inward. I'm writing towards the woman I hold in trust, who I hold inside me, who I hope to grow into, she says. These songs are kind of breadcrumbs in the forest for me to try and figure out how to do life. Sometimes she worries there is something selfish or self-serving in writing songs to make sense of her own life. But then I remember that when I was holding my three-day-old baby in so much exhaustion and such huge emotion, there was nothing that could feed me except the music of big thief vocalist Adrian Lenker, she says. And then, in the wee hours of sleep training, my brain hurting so much, the only thing I found that could help was Philip Glass's saxophone quartets. Sometimes she remembers being 16 years old, on her way to school, listening to PJ Harvey on her yellow Sony Sports Walkman. And how, every morning, driving her daughter, she wants to listen to Hit the Road Jack as soon as they hit the road. And I remember that songs are part of how we remember to be ourselves and make it through our actual real lives, she says. It's important. They are translators for how to do life. That's what songs are to me. That was I Was Singing Myself Through the Grief Feist on Losing Her Father and Finding Her Voice by Laura Barton Read by Colleen Prendergast. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Evelyn Miller, Joplin Sibtain and Colleen Prendergast and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. 
This episode was produced by Jack Claremont and Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.